what you're thinking. We're in a series called the Gospel of Mark. The graphic says the Gospel of Mark. And yet you told us to turn to the book of Titus. Well, last week we talked about Jesus changing us. The idea was Jesus brought change then. Jesus brings change now. As I studied the next passage in Mark, just picking up on the next verse, I couldn't get away from the idea of Jesus changing us. And yesterday as I was prayer walking around town, the Holy Spirit brought this passage to my mind. So we're going to spend one more week talking about being changed by Jesus too, so we can see the importance of it and, and the possibility of it. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Titus chapter 3, verse 3, uh, page 918 in the Pew Bible, I hope. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Titus 3 and 3. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy. We were hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of His Holy Spirit whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The title of the message this morning is simply change. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You. You are great and wonderful. You are glorious. Lord, we rejoice today in the privilege we have of gathering in Your house and singing Your praise and studying Your Word. We rejoice Today, Lord, in the baptismal service we're going to have today for the three who have come to really commit their lives to you. Thank you, Lord, for your work in their lives. Continue to strengthen them and guide them and and help them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our church that, Lord, you would continue to draw people closer to you, that you would continue to save the lost. You would continue to draw people to recommit their lives to Christ, continue to draw the prodigals and draw people to a deeper level of commitment. Father, today we pray your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to understand your word. Father, we know that apart from the illumination of your Holy Spirit, your word is a closed book. and We're not really going to get out of it what we need. So today, Father, send your Holy Spirit first, send your Holy Spirit upon me that my speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So whatever happens, People's faith would be in in you and not in anything I've said. Father, also send your Holy Spirit upon all of us. Father, that he would give us ears to hear. Ears to hear what you have for us today. Ears to hear what you're saying to the churches through your word and through your spirit. And then send your spirit upon us, Father, to, to open our hearts, to plow up the fallow ground of our hearts and let your word sink deep in and bring forth good fruit for your glory. Father, today is not a common day. It's not just a box we check to come to church. Lord, it's something significant. We are here. We're meeting with the living God. We are studying about the risen Christ. The powerful Holy Spirit is moving among us. Guide us in this, Father. Let let us be different because of your work in our lives this morning. Have your way in all things. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this passage, Paul contrasts life without Jesus with life with Jesus. 
starts with a rough description of humanity in verse 3. But it ends in verse 7 with people being justified by grace, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Something in between happens to make a difference. Because those who were verse 3 are the very ones in verse 7. And what happens in the middle is the life-changing power of Jesus is mentioned in, in those intervening verses. Knowing Jesus not only changes our eternal destinies, but it also changes our eternal life. Knowing Jesus makes a difference in our lives because Jesus changes us. And, and part of what we learn here is what we once were has to change. Right? We can't stay that and have the justified according to His grace made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So change is necessary. But what we also learn is that change is possible. Because it's not about our deeds, but it's the Holy Spirit who is sent through Jesus who brings the change. And so our key truth today is change is necessary and possible through Jesus. Change is necessary in all of our lives. Right? No matter who you are today, no matter how close you are to Jesus today, no matter how satisfied you are with your life today, change is necessary. Because the end goal of being a disciple of Jesus is to be like Jesus. And there's one thing I know about every person in here today. Is we're not just like Jesus yet. There is work that needs to be done in all of our lives. So change is necessary. But change is hard. It is difficult to make lasting changes to our life. And the difficulty of making lasting changes to our life can make us think it's not possible. That we just can't. And in some ways I guess we just can't. There are things like what we were in verse 3, we can't change that. We're not able to fix that on our own. But, but Jesus can change us. So while change is necessary, hallelujah, it is also possible through Jesus. I want to, from this passage, semi-quickly, give us four truths about change. The first is, we do need to be changed. We need to be changed. Now, while many of us, we do have a great desire to be different. There are always some who wonder why they need to change. For these people, they are satisfied with themselves just as they are and they don't see any need to change. Well, Paul explains in verse 3 why we all need to change. And he describes people in, in several unflattering ways. One, he says, foolish. Now, the idea of foolish, as Paul intends it here, carries with the idea of being ignorant to, to Jesus' will and Jesus' way. The foolish person doesn't know what he doesn't know concerning the ways of Jesus. The foolish person doesn't know what he doesn't know about the will of Jesus. He takes no thought to his life. He takes no thought in any decision he ever makes about what would Jesus have me to do in this moment. And, and in that moment of not taking thought to Jesus, he, he essentially proves himself to be foolish. Not only foolish, but disobedient. Every parent and teacher here know what disobedience is. Disobedience, here though it refers to Jesus. The foolish person doesn't know Jesus' will. The disobedient person doesn't care about Jesus' will. They're going to do their own thing no matter what. He also says they were foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Now, 
Someone who is deceived has been misled, has been led astray. In this case, it refers to people who are separated from Jesus, but don't realize they are separated from Jesus. It could be people who think they're saved, but they're not. The Bible tells us in like Matthew 7, Jesus tells us there will be some who say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So it could be those people who are deceived. It could also be people who are convinced there is no God. Not they, they said in their heart there is no God. They do not believe there is a God. It could be people who worship another God other than Jesus. It could be people who think they have their own special deal with God. Many people in our day would say, well, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but, but we, me and Jesus, we have our own thing going. Those people are deceived. Jesus has one deal, and it's the same deal he gives to everyone, and no special deals for anyone. Being deceived could be those who live in sin and assume Jesus is okay with their sin because their life is not necessarily bad or miserable or hard. It could be people who, who for various reasons, they just kind of reject what God has said in His Word about how to live and what to do and what, what it means to live for Jesus. And they've come up with their own ideas. These people are deceived. In the end, regardless of what it is, they are deceived. They think they're following Jesus or they think they don't need Jesus. And so they're being misled and pulled further and further away from Jesus all the time. All the while they think they're okay. Talks about being enslaved to various lusts. This is just what it sounds like. People who are enslaved to various lusts, they basically they just live for pleasure. What well, doesn't have to be sexual pleasure. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It can be any kind of pleasure. Their, their motto is essentially, if it feels good, do it. They serve the lusts and the pleasures of their life without regard to what Jesus has to say about morality or how they're supposed to live or any sort of standards of righteousness. It feels good. They desire it. They're going to do it. These people are actually enslaved to various lusts. Malice. Malice is an attitude of wishing harm to others. People who live in malice may or may not be violent themselves. Now, some people who, whose hearts are filled with malice actively seek to harm others. They seek to harm them physically. Maybe they seek to harm them spiritually, emotionally, uh, financially, or relationally. But they go out of their way to try to harm someone in, in one way or another. Now, there are other people who their hearts are also filled with malice, but they probably don't actively seek to inflict harm on others, but they do rejoice when they see it happen to them. They kind of anticipate it. They kind of hope they get to see when everything falls down and nothing goes through the way they want. They, they want bad things to happen to other people. And they want to see it and they want to rejoice in it when it happens. Their hearts are filled with malice. Envy. People who live in envy are jealous of what others have. But the jealousy they have isn't, gosh, that's a cool car. I wish I had one like that. What are we going to have for supper? It is, gosh, that's a cool car. I wish I had one like that. I hate them because they have it. I hope they have a wreck. I hope they go to Walmart and somebody shoves a shopping cart into it and scratches it up. I'm a good Christian as they are. I deserve what they have. Why do they have it and I don't? We, A person who lives in the envy described here doesn't just like what someone else has. Begins to actively dislike them because they have it. And, and they don't. Hate-filled. It talks about hating one another and being hateful. Um, we're all familiar with hateful attitudes. Then there's hating one another. And, and hating one another pictures not just hating someone, but, but basically they hate us back. It's the opposite of a mutual admiration society. Right? So in, in this case, they, they hate people. 
But they also live in a situation where they they hate people and the people hate them back. Probably there's some sort of give and take. I hate you. I hate you back. I mean, it's it's not just kind of I don't like them, but I'm going to live off over here to myself. It is an active action filled. I hate them and they hate me back. Now, we could say, gosh, that's a that's a terrible description of, of people. But but that's the world I live in, don't you? I mean, think about the political discourse we hear on a daily basis in our nation. Most of what passes for political discourse in America today could be described as hate-filled and malice and people hating one another. Right? Wouldn't that be an accurate description of almost all political commentary in the world today? Think about what is on the TV or what the, the popular songs on the radio. How much of that could be accurately described as being filled with various lusts and sinful pleasures? But let's bring it closer. It doesn't have to be the people out there. What about in our immediate world? Don't we see these same sorts of things among the regular people we know? Don't we know loads of people who are disobedient to God? Don't we know loads of people who are foolish or deceived? Don't we know loads of people whose lives are filled with envy and hatred? But, but let's bring it even closer and meddle a bit. Haven't we experienced many of these things in our own hearts? Haven't we all been foolish at one time or another? Haven't we been deceived about what was right? Haven't we been just outright disobedient to God? Haven't we had times in our life where we serve the various lusts and pleasures the world offers? Haven't we hated people and lived in such a way that people hated us back? I know these things are true of me and have been true of me far more than I would care to admit. Now, for me, I, I do not want to be this way. I do not want to live that way. But what I also know about me is I can't fix it. I can't undo these problems on my own. I can't just stop being deceived if I'm deceived, partially because I'm deceived. The deceived person doesn't know they're deceived. I can't just stop being enslaved. Part of being enslaved is that you're a slave. And here's the reality. You can't either. If these things are in your life, you can't fix it on your own. You can't push them out of your life on your own. Like me, you can knuckle it under for a little while. Humans that are disciplined can be mightily disciplined and they can knuckle things under for a while. But the problem with knuckling things under is it's something under pressure that's eventually going to blow up. And when it blows up, it blows up big and it blows up legitimately and it blows up badly. So if we want to be changed, we do have to admit we need to be changed. This is kind of where it all has to start. We have to look at this verse and say, maybe I'm not all of these things. Maybe I'm not all of these things right now, but I've seen them in my heart. I know they're always there and, and that's not how I want to be. But I also know I can't change myself. Change is needed. If the passage just ended here, it would not be a hopeful passage. Change is needed. But thankfully, change is also possible through Jesus. Second truth about this is Jesus wants to change us. Now, this is this is maybe the most important point. I don't know if that's the case, but I'm going to say it is at this point. 
Current wisdom says loving someone means accepting them just as they are. Now, there is an element of truth in this. However, accepting people as they are doesn't mean we don't want better for them. Think about it this way. As a dad, I'll always love my daughters. That doesn't mean I'm always going to approve of the life choices and the decisions they make. They can make life choices that would lead them into a downward spiral. Now, would I love them if they make those sort of life choices? Absolutely, I will. Will I want better for them than the choices they're currently making? Absolutely, I will. Similarly, Jesus wants better for us than what we can do for ourselves. Jesus wants to change us because his plans and desires for us are far better than what we see in verse This isn't what he wants us to live like. This isn't how he wants us to be. He wants us to be something different. That's what verse 4 is all about. For we were once these things, but... But means something is about to change. But means everything before it doesn't count. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. But Jesus did something. We were those things, but Jesus intervened. Now, part of what we need to understand here is Jesus is central to everything. But Jesus wants to change us. And he wants to change us so badly he he came to earth to live among us and to be one of us. He came to earth to, to endure the same sort of temptation to be disobedient, foolish, deceived, enslaved. Hateful and hating others. He he came to experience the temptation to those things, but to not give in to them. He also came to die on the cross for these sins that are true in our heart. He did this because he wants to change us. He did this because he loves us too much to leave us in verse three. Man, that's huge for us to understand. Jesus, his love for us. Listen, it is not love to affirm someone in something that destroys them. I mean, this is true in the physical realm. If my daughters, when they were little, if they wanted to stick a wet knife in an electrical outlet And they really wanted to. And they thought doing it would make them happy. It wouldn't be love for me to say, go ahead, I just want you to be happy, honey. That's child abuse. If they wanted to drink bleach because the bottle was pretty, it wouldn't be love for me to allow them to do it. That would be child abuse. In the same way, if someone is living in a life that is eternally destructive to them, For us to say, well, you do you, honey, just you be happy and live by your truth is not love. It is spiritual abuse. God, help us to love people enough to want to change them through Christ. To love people enough to tell them the truth about what's right and what's wrong. Jesus loves us and it's a perfect love that does not accept our sin. That does not tolerate our sin. That died to pay the penalty for our sin. And then works within us to make us different. To make us holy. To make us partakers of the divine nature. So we can escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. 
Jesus, his kindness and his love for mankind are seen in his dying on the cross on our behalf and his working to make us different than we are naturally. We need to be changed and Jesus wants to change us. But not only does Jesus want to change us, Jesus works to change us. Look at verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing and the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Ah, this, is, this is the most important point in the message. Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to say that everyone, so we listen really carefully. Sadly, far too often, we, especially within conservative evangelicalism, we have made the message of the Bible do better. Do better. What you're doing is wrong. Do better. But that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of the gospel. This is a a tragic misconception that breeds self-righteous and legalism, which is actually what we'll talk about next week. When we're doing this, what we're doing is we're focusing on sin management instead of life change. And the problem with sin management, regardless of which sin we're trying to manage, is that sin is not the main problem. Right? The actions of verse 3 are bad, but they're not the main problem. The main problem is that they're a symptom of what's in our heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the life reveals When we focus on sin management while failing to deal with the cause of the sin, we fail to fix the problem. It's like when you break your leg. It hurts. But the pain isn't the problem, is it? The pain is a symptom. The bone in your leg is broken. That's the problem. The pain we feel through sin is not the problem. It is the symptom of the problem that our nature is broken. Our hearts are not right with God. If someone broke their leg and took powerful pain medication to numb the pain, it would not fix the real problem. In fact, over time, it would make it worse. In a similar way, if we just try to numb the pain of sin by doing better, not only do we not fix it, over time we make it worse. And here's how we make it worse. We make it worse in, in I guess, one of two different ways. One way is we make it shameful to have a problem. Do better. Well, you're not doing better. Obviously, you're a terrible Christian. You really don't love Jesus. Well, if that's the case, what do we do? We bury it. I can't come out and tell you I have problems. If I tell you I have problems, you're going to tell me to do better and that as a pastor I should be doing better already. So now I'm going to have to bury my problems and hide it under the cover of darkness and try to deal with it all alone on my own without any of my brothers and sisters to try to come alongside and help me. How's that going to work out? Well, not well. When you see Christians who are famous and they're falling and they're messing up and their lives are being destroyed in the public sphere, understand they were told to do better. And so they tried to push it down and they tried to hide it. But what's underground always eventually erupts. Second problem is it does make us self-righteous. Let's say I do manage to do better. I knuckle it under. I get it under control. I did it. (laughs) 
I'm pretty awesome. I don't understand why you can't do better. I mean, I did it. Surely you could do it too. If you were as good as me, you'd do it, Gerald. Right? That's what we do. We, we puff ourselves up and we think, gosh, I did it. I. <laughs> I'm really kind of awesome. I'm glad Jesus helped it. It was mostly me. And that turns us into Pharisees, which again is what we'll talk about next week. Jesus did not come to tell us to do better. Jesus came to change us. He came to make us different. That's what we see in verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we did in righteousness. So his, his salvation, the change he makes, is not based upon our good works. We didn't do a bunch of good works before, and Jesus said, they're obviously serious, so I'm going to save them and change them. It's not the way it works. We were verse 3 when he saved us and he changed us. This is all what he did. It was in accordance with his mercy. But notice, it's the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So there are two ways Jesus works to change us through the Holy Spirit. First is the washing of regeneration. Regeneration, the initial change. Again, doesn't come about by our good works or our good deeds. It is a work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives to save us is the Holy Spirit is the one who comes to us and convicts us of our sin, of the coming judgment, and of our lack of righteousness. Now, convict could better be translated as convince. Right? There was a moment in all of our lives where we did not think we were sinners. We thought we were fine. We thought we were good to go. We had no fear of the coming judgment. Then there was a night, if you're saved, there was a moment in time where you realized, I I have sinned. And because I've sinned, I'm not righteous. And because I'm not righteous, the judgment is coming for me. What brought that about? What brought that change of mind about in our lives? Well, here's the reality. It wasn't us. It was the Holy Spirit convincing us We had sinned. It was the Holy Spirit convincing us we lacked righteousness. It was the Holy Spirit reminding us there is a judgment to come and we're going to face it. This is the initial work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, it's important we understand this because no one comes to Jesus apart from this. None of us who are saved were ever just sitting at home one day and thought, I need Jesus. That's what the problem in my life is. John chapter 6 tells us No one comes to Jesus unless they're first drawn by the Father. So Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, initiates salvation. He is the one who begins to convict us, to convince us, to deal in our hearts. Then we come to the point where we're aware. I've sinned. I'm not righteous. There's a judgment to come. In that moment, the Holy Spirit shows us that there is righteousness available through Jesus. He points us to Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. He says there's a way out, and it's through Jesus. And the Holy Spirit then urges us to flee to Jesus and be saved. In that moment, we have a decision to make. Am I going to go to Jesus and be saved, or am I going to stay here and stay just like I am? Now, in that moment, we all decide. We decide either to go or to stay, but we do decide. We decide to receive or reject. We we always decide. And then once we decide, if we decide to go to Jesus and be saved. At that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and he does this work in our heart that Paul calls the washing of regeneration. 
to work of the Spirit where we're made a new creation. We're given a new life and a spiritual life and an eternal life. At this point, we're a new creation. All the old has passed away. We're, we're something entirely different. Now, this is nothing we do. You and I, we can't bring about the kind of change in our lives. We're just not able to change our nature. This is all a work of the Holy Spirit. We can't be religious enough or devoted enough or enough self-control or moral enough. It is all done by the Spirit of God. We must be regenerated. Jesus, This is how Jesus works to change us. This initial first step, draw us to Him through the Spirit and then regenerate us through the Spirit. The second part, the way He works to change us, is through sanctification. Notice what He goes on. And the renewing by the Spirit. The renewing of the Holy Spirit is called sanctification. Sanctification is the process of actually becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification, it affects all of our lives. It, it is not a surface level change. Sanctification isn't wearing a tie instead of not a tie. That, that's not necessarily sanctification. Sanctification is a much deeper work in our lives than this. And the way sanctification works is, well, there's, I guess, three things that, the, that Jesus uses to, to change us through sanctification. One is the Word of God. Second is the Spirit of God. Third is, again, our decision of faith. So what happens is we read the Bible, we study the Bible, somebody preaches the Bible, and the Holy Spirit begins to press on us about something. It doesn't have to be sin. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It can be you're not doing this and you ought to be. It could be your attitude here is wrong, your belief here is wrong, something. But it's a, the Holy Spirit takes the Word and presses on us about something specific and says, here's what you're doing, it's wrong, here's what you need to do instead. So the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. In that moment, we have a decision to make again. We make the change. We cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. We change our attitude. We change our belief. We work to change the issues in our life, following His power and through his, what He is doing in us. Or we resist it and we reject it. Now again, we always choose. We always make a decision in this moment. And as we cooperate with us, with the Holy Spirit, we're being continually changed. We're being sanctified and made more and more like Jesus. And, and the point here is Jesus works to change us. He is always working to change us. Right now, Jesus is working on every person in this room to change them. He is either working on you to bring about regeneration or he is working on you to further your sanctification. But Jesus is always at work trying to change us and make us more like Him. And the fourth point, the last thing that's the most important part, is cooperation with change is worth it. While Jesus works to change us, change does not happen instantly or without our cooperation. And the process of change is hard. If I believe something... And the Holy Spirit says what you believe is wrong. I don't know about you. I have a hard time changing a deeply held belief. For me, it's a, I, don't, I don't change easily. I am very much set in my ways just in all things. And so a change in my behavior, a change in my belief, a change in 
any aspect of my life does not come easily. It's difficult for me to make changes. Changes are often painful. Like, uh, let me, one example. There's a period of time where the Holy Spirit was dealing with me to go apologize to someone who I, I didn't feel like I'd done anything wrong. But they got mad and left the church over it. And it was years. Years later, the Holy Spirit brought it to my mind that I need to go apologize to them. Now, we're talking 10 years later. I'm thinking, I don't want to go. My pride is thinking, I don't want to go apologize. I didn't do anything wrong. So what do I do in that moment? Right? I mean, there's the choice. There's the, there's the issue. Am I going to cooperate with this sanctification and be more like Jesus? Or am I going to, to be proud and arrogant and be more like Stacy? Well, I had a choice to make. And, and, and the choice was difficult either way because the, the Holy Spirit had dealt with me in such a way that if I had not done it, it was going to be obvious to me I was disobeying God. And if I did do it, I was going to have to humble myself and apologize for something I didn't feel was wrong. And it was, like I said, 10, 12 years later. It's hard. Making changes are hard. And it's always going to be hard. So it's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for me. So the question could arise then, why do what's hard? Our culture is very much, again, we like to do, we like to take the easy way. Why do what's hard when we can do what's easy? And the answer is, it's worth it. We cooperate with the Spirit. We cooperate with Jesus because it's worth it. Notice that when we cooperate with the initial change, Verse 7, we're justified. When we cooperate with regeneration, we're justified. Justification is the process where God declares a believing sinner to be free of condemnation through their faith in the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. When we surrender to that initial transformation and we go to Jesus for salvation, all of our sins are taken away. All of our unrighteousness is taken off of us and it is placed upon the cross. And all of the righteousness of Jesus is then placed in us to the point that when God looks at us and when God views us, He views us as the righteousness of God in Christ. Think about it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you've repented of your sins and been born again, you're justified to the extent Your righteousness is such that it's as though you had kept all Ten Commandments every moment of your life from the day you were born until now. And as long as we're in Christ, it will continue to be that way. That's pretty amazing. Now, I don't know about you. I haven't perfectly kept all Ten Commandments on my own, not even close. To think that I am righteous and there is no condemnation for me because of Jesus. It was hard to come to that initial choice where I went to Jesus to be saved. But the longer I'm saved, the more I realize it was was worth it. But not only are we given justification, we're adopted. Notice what he goes on to say. We're made heirs. Now, become an heir, which is a picture of Roman adoption. Now, Roman adoption took place. uh, Well, I mean, this is cool. So Roman adoptions didn't often take place with children. And the reason was. The Romans, if they adopted somebody, they adopted somebody to carry on the family name. And so they wanted someone who had grown 
who had matured, who had proven themselves worthy of the family name. So they wouldn't adopt a child for fear the child would grow up and bring shame to the family name. Because when you were adopted, you were given all the rights and all the privileges of the adopted family. It was almost like a a change. I mean, it was a change. It was like who you were before was dead and gone. And now you were totally known in life of your adopted family. So there was a lot that went into being adopted. So they were very careful about who they adopted. And here's why this is so exciting. When Jesus adopted us, when God adopted us through Jesus, he didn't adopt us because we had proven ourselves worthy. He adopted us while we were verse three. He adopted us while we were deceived and foolish and disobedient and enslaved and filled with malice, envy, hateful and hating one another. He knew what we were like. He knew everything about what we were like, everything about what we'd ever done, everything about what we'd ever do. And he still said, you're mine. I want you. And so when we cooperate with that initial change, we're given. We're given this adoption into Christ. And we are joint heirs with Christ. We have received a share of everything that belongs to God. And then lastly, we have hope of eternal life. Hope is the well-grounded, well-founded expectation God will do what he has said he will do. Part of what God has said he will do is take us to be with him. He has said that we will live forever with him in glory. Now, I know in our day of rationalism, the idea of of heaven is kind of seen as an escapist mindset. Um, Again, I don't know about you. I watch the world. I kind of like an escapist mindset. The world I live in is not overly pretty, right? I mean, there's wars, violence, and famine, and evil, and wickedness. To know, to, to be able to look at all of that and say, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. To have a hope that the Apostle Paul said is so great that the troubles of this life cannot be compared to it. I mean, that's worth all the pain and all the difficulty of change. I can't. Grandma Rice, Grandma Rice would always say, what would we do without the Lord? And I think the older I get, the more I think, Whew, I would not even want to find out. I can't imagine Living, thinking, looking, watching the news, looking at social media and thinking, this is the best there is. This is everything there is in life. My goodness, what a miserable person I would be if my hope did not extend beyond this life. But in Christ, we have hope. And this world, no matter how bad it gets, There is something better coming. Something so good, the bad of this world cannot possibly compare. From the day we embrace Jesus as Savior to the day we stand with Him in glory, there is a process taking place in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. Change is hard. I would love to tell you, That when Jesus deals with you about things, it's going to be about the stuff you want to be dealt with about. 
and it's going to be easy and simple. But that would be a lie. Change is hard. And the bigger the issue Jesus wants to change, the harder the change will be. But that makes sense, though. We're talking about being supernaturally changed from the inside out. I mean, that's huge. There'll be opposition. There'll be difficulties. And at times it it will be painful. But it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. So I want you to, everybody stand, bow your heads, close your eyes and stand. Those who are going to be baptized can go ahead and go to the baptistry rooms if they want. Every one of us in here this morning needs to respond to the message in one way or another. The way we need to respond is by submitting to the Holy Spirit. His leading in the the changing work of Jesus. If you're here and you know that you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord then what you need to do is surrender the Holy Spirit and His work of sanctification in your life. There's something probably specific He's dealt with you about today. Something maybe He's dealt with you about for days and weeks prior to today. And what you need to know is that is the Holy Spirit talking to you, dealing with you. That's Jesus saying, I have something better for you than what's going on in your life right now. Your need this morning is to surrender to that, to follow that, to go to Jesus and commit to change in whatever way He's calling on you to change. If you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus in your life, then right now the Holy Spirit is calling you to come to Jesus and be saved. Surrender your life to Him and experience that initial transformation of regeneration. Whatever it is that needs to be done, there is something for all of us. Jesus is working to change all of us today. Change is hard. Change is painful. Change is possible. And change is worth it because of Jesus. If you want to come to the altar, you can come to the altar to pray or you can pray where you are. We're just going to take just a minute or two and then I'll pray and we'll move on with the service.